Calling home this morning is the woman who was on Time magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the United States in 2019. That's because Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, after 23 years, was instrumental in finally catching the infamous Golden State Killer in California, a man named Joe D'Angelo, responsible for 13 murders and 50 rapes. Barbara made an even more prestigious list in Nature magazine that year. She was one of the ten people who mattered most in science. The Golden State Killer case isn't the only big crime Barbara has solved or helped solve. She led police to the perpetrator of what became known as the Bear Brook murders, the Bear Brook murders as well. And in the case of D'Angelo, she used DNA found at one of his crime scenes to track his relatives and eventually crack the case. Police in America were initially sceptical of what her skills could do, but those skills have changed the whole field of crime investigation. Barbara lives in Carmel, California, the town that Clint Eastwood was the mayor of for a while, you may remember. She didn't start out as a genealogist. She was an academic specialising in cancer and then later on a patent lawyer. Barbara Ray Venter, thank you for joining us. Hello. Hello to you and thank you for inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure. Can we talk about the time your interest in genealogy began, first of all? In very sad family circumstances, I think, and you were staying in Kerry Kerry at the time. Um, that's correct. Um, my parents had been in a car accident, and unfortunately my mother was killed in the accident. She was not very tall. She was only about 4 foot 11, and so... What she would do is she would pull her seatbelt down and just wear it as a lap because it would cut her across the neck. Um, um, so she had she had was not wearing the you know over the shoulder part of her seatbelt. So she, when the car actually went off the road and hit a tree, and of course when it hit the tree, she went forward and hit her head on the dashboard according um, to the ME, and that's that's what happened with her. And then of course my father was he had had a heart attack while driving apparently. And he was actually in the intensive care unit for almost three months. Um, but he eventually actually walked out of there. Which is some consolation. I didn't know the details of that accident, and that is so sad. But you mm-hmm. you were necessarily in Kerry Kerry for a while then, and you started thinking about your family roots, basically, like a lot of people do. Well, actually what happened is I had always thought that all of my grandparents were off the boat from Scotland. While I was staying in my parents' house, my father had asked me to pay bills and stuff like that while he was in the hospital. And so while I was going through stuff on his desk, I found his birth certificate. And I discovered that not only was um, my grandmother born in New Zealand, but her father was also. Um, he actually was one of the original births in uh, the uh, community that had been set up in Waipu. And so he was actually born in 1862 in Waipu. I was astounded. I had no idea. (laughs) Uh, And you delved further. I know we're cutting the long story short, but you delved further in time. You'd retired from the law when you embarked on serious genealogy. So let's backtrack. You're an Aucklander. You were brought up in Remoera back then. What took you to the U.S. in the first place? I think you were 20. I moved to Australia. Uh, So I lived in Sydney uh, and uh, 
while I was in Sydney, I met somebody from the US who had been, this is really dating myself, <laughs> who was stationed in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. So he was on R&R in Sydney. And so I met him and um, we eventually ended up getting married about nine months later in Switzerland. And then from there came to the US. Your career track seems unusual. Uh, BAs in psychology and biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego, then a PhD, then you were a postdoc fellow at a big cancer centre in New York, an assistant professor at the University of Texas medical branch looking at breast and gastrointestinal cancer, and then another professorship at Stanford, and then you moved into law. So, gee, you've had a pretty varied career. Yeah, I didn't. So the, the the Stanford was just it was an adjunct professorship. So I was teaching just a couple of classes, uh, actually a couple of semesters. So that was nothing particularly special. Um, but yeah, so I, I've yeah I've reinvented myself a few times over. I'm sort of in the middle of doing another metamorphosis, um, in that um, I have become very interested in native plant gardening, and so I signed up with the University of California Extension Program to become a Master Gardener. Ah, a Master Gardener, that sounds grand. (laughs) (laughs) Along with other grand titles you have. Now, aside from that that stay in Kerikeri, have you come back much to New Zealand since? So um, not, not since, but while my parents were alive, I actually tried to come back every couple of years. Um... And but since 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 they both died, I've uh, I think I've only been back for one sort of extended trip. I I came back with um, a cousin of mine from the UK, who her, New Zealand was on her bucket list, and so she persuaded me into giving her the grand tour. <laughs> so we actually spent I think it was almost three months in New Zealand. So that would have been um, about ten years ago. Okay. Gee, well, we've we've changed a lot since. I'd say we've changed quite a bit in ten years, actually. Or oh, so is America. Everybody has I, probably. Yes, I mean, yeah, the pandemic has changed so much. Yeah. And why, in the end, uh, did you settle on Carmel, which I will ask you more about the charms of a bit later. In a way, it reminds me of New Zealand. I think, um, you know, it's it's sort of a rugged coastline and. It's just, in fact, Carmel could be a sister city of Kerry Kerry. Ah. Lots of artists and lots of um, agricultural areas surrounding it. So it's it's kind of interesting. So when I would go back and visit my parents when they were living in Kerry Kerry, I would think, wow, this is just just like Carmel. It's <laughs> all the artists. And um, on top of that, the famous people, like you've got Kerry DeCarnawa, of course, was living in, in uh, Kerry Kerry. So it was interesting that there were famous people living there like there are here. Um, and then all of the agriculture surrounding what is really a very small town. You got into genealogy. You basically pioneered the whole technique of using genealogy sites to find missing or murdered people. Initially, this was work on behalf of one of your friends, was it? I was doing my own family history research, and of course I was using DNA because trying to connect the dots back from New Zealand to Nova Scotia, which is where most of my 
uh, paternal grandmother's relatives had stopped off and then back to the north of Scotland, there just isn't a paper trail for a lot of it. Then I started persuading all of my relatives to do DNA testing so I could figure out how we connected to everybody else. And of course, I had no clue how to do it. So I went, went online and I found a um, a group that was teaching genetic genealogy, um, a group called DNA Adoption. So I signed up, took their six-week class, and that's how I learned to do genetic genealogy. And skipping forward somewhat, at some point the, <laughs> the police began to ask you for assistance, yes? So actually it was at the same group, DNA Adoption. Um, when, when they found out I had a science background, they asked me to help with teaching the classes and then also answering some of the webmail that came in. Ah. And so, so the web, there was a webmail query came in from uh, Deputy Peter Headley in San Bernardino asking if, we could, if he could use that same technique we're using for the adoptees to identify somebody who didn't know anything about where she was from or her family history. So that was, that was actually how I got started. And so the police got to know your skills more and more, and that's how you were drawn into helping solve other cases, basically. Correct, yeah. You wrote the book, I Know Who You Are, How an Amateur DNA Sleuth Unmasked the Golden State Killer and Changed Crime Fighting Forever. So I know it's a complicated story because I've made my way through it, but basically, how did you find this horrible individual? What you're doing is you're you're looking for uh, people in the databases who share DNA with the person you're trying to identify. So in the case of the Golden State Killer, um, what we did is we just looked for people who shared DNA with him. We built trees. And then what you do is you look for common ancestors. And that, in short, was the kind of detective work. But even when you found him, even when you found him and called the police and said words to the effect of, I've got him, they weren't sure. They said, are you sure, Barbara? Well, it was kind of interesting. They they had different information to what I had. So since I wasn't law enforcement, they hadn't shared all that they had uh, with me. And apparently they had some information um, from a, a DNA testing company that had showed that he had uh, green eyes. So I'm looking for somebody with blue eyes. When I got the information on the eye color, so the FBI, the ones who actually pulled the, the driver's license records to get that, <clears throat> I'm, of course, zeroing in on the person with blue eyes. They're zeroing in on somebody with green. He must have got a hell of a shock when he was caught after all those years, actually. I don't know if you were told at the time what his reaction was, but he would have been dumbfounded. I'm sure he was. Although it's kind of interesting whether he was doing this for all 43 years or not, we don't know. But um, they, uh, when the police had him under surveillance, he was driving as though he were concerned that he was being followed. Ah. He supposedly was driving in, in, in an evasive fashion as though he was evading somebody who was trailing him. So either he had picked up on something or maybe he'd been doing that for 43 years. Who knows? Yes, yeah. yes. that's interesting. Barbara, working with a police team trying to chase down the Golden State Killer, you used a DNA sample from a Golden State Killer crime scene to create a DNA profile that could be uploaded to genealogy databases, essentially. Correct. Right. 
after he was caught, you laid low, didn't you? Why? I did. I, I asked to remain anonymous. I was concerned for safety, um, given that I was the only person at the time who was doing this this kind of work. You know, who knows what nutcases out there who realizes that I can identify them. And if they've left their DNA where they shouldn't have, maybe they're going to get, try to get rid of me so I can't do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it was it was a safety concern. And so it wasn't until after there were other people who were out there who were doing the same kind of work, who were, who were much more flamboyant than I am. I tend to be a little shy. Um that I felt I, that, you know, maybe it was okay that, that people knew that, that it was me who had identified him. Yeah, which is good. Dr. Barbara Ray Venter is with us. Are you still doing this work, Barbara? Oh, yes. I have oh, probably about 40 or 50 cases. Oh, gee. Well, I have, a, I have a group. So there are 15 of us in my group. And so um, we, we're working very hard on continuing to solve cases. There is a TV series in your group, isn't there? A TV drama series, the 15 of you catching killers and kidnappers and all sorts of people. Is there? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I tend not to like watching things on, on myself, so I'm really not up to date on what, what else might be out there. It's pretty phenomenal what you've achieved. Your book's up for an award, isn't it? It is. I was very surprised. It's been, um, it's one of, uh, I think it's five books that have been nominated for an Edgar Award for uh, 2024 for um, best true, I think what they called it was true crime novel. Um, it's not really a novel, but that's, I think, what the title is, something like that. Yeah, so, the, yeah, it's kind of about that. The Edgar Award's the big one, isn't it, for crime? It is, yeah. Um, and so the, the announcements will be May 1st. Oh, touch wood. Good luck with that one. That'd well, be, thank you. That would be great to win. Carmel by the Sea, to give it its full title, it's a bit south of San Francisco and quite a bit north of LA. So you say it's like the American Kerry Kerry. It's a little boutique town with, um, as you say, artists. Lots of charming shops I notice online and restaurants and interesting little museums and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's acute. It, acute is probably the best best adjective for describing it. The municipal code prohibits wearing shoes having heels taller than two inches. Did you know that? <laughs> I think I've seen that somewhere. They also have other other um, more irritating uh, laws, like you you can't trim your trees if they're larger than I think it's like two inches or something in diameter, the branches, you're not allowed to trim them. Um, so it's it's very leafy. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one square mile in size. It's not a big burg, is it? It's, it's, it's a small town. Right. Gorgeous beaches and legendary sunsets, am I correct? Correct. You have sea otters. Have you ever seen them? I have. Um I, I belong to a, a club uh, in Pebble Beach uh, where uh, when you're sitting in the dining room there, um, you often see sea otters down on the, on the rocks. Oh, wow. So oh, they're, they're, they're so cute. Um, and, of course, we've got the world-famous Monterey Aquarium, which has sea otters also. And you've got pelicans, whales cruise by. 
Hiking looks nice in the Point Lobos Nat- uh, State Natural Reserve. It's beautiful. It really is. It's a, a really lovely place to go hiking. And isn't there a fabulous drive you can do past Pebble Beach? Even I'd heard of that. 17-mile drive, but you have to pay to go on it. <laughs> you do. And you can gawk at all the gorgeous houses there, which are you know many, many millions of dollars um, to purchase. And we're talking you know, $15, 20000000 million. So they're, they're rather spectacular, yes. Okay, they're Harry and Meghan level houses, obviously. Um, yeah, but I don't think they live there. No, they don't. <laughs> and and the and the Carmel Mission. This is what the town's named after. Can you tell us a wee bit about that? So I've I've done a, a mini trip through the mission. There are, of course, there are missions all over California. Um, I don't know any very much about the missions. Um, I know my son when he was in in school had to had to learn about all the different missions, but um, I really can't tell you very much about them, I'm afraid. No, that's okay. I didn't expect you to be an expert on on everything, but <laughs> I just thought I'd mention it because it's, you know, the town's named after. The, well, the, it, it, the, the church there has incredible acoustics. I, I, so the there is a, a Carmel Bach, Bach Festival every year, and sometimes they will have part of the venue will actually be at the mission, and I've gone so I've gone to musical presentations there, and the acoustics are really really stunning. Okay. Do you need to go into Santa Cruz or San Francisco or the Big Smoke much to you know buy things, refrigerators, microwaves, or whatever, or is it all on sale where you are in Carmel? So, so the well, the Monterey Peninsula has several several towns. So, the, yeah, I mean, all that kind of stuff is here. The only thing I do regularly go to Santa Cruz for is for medical care. Um, it seems to be difficult to recruit medical professionals to the area. It's expensive living here, um, and so it makes it difficult to recruit medical people here. So, I end up most of my doctors um, that I see are in Santa Cruz, but that's probably the only only thing that I really go out of town for. And we assume you pay through the nose in America for medical treatment. It's still the case? Um, well, I, I'm old enough that I have Medicare. <laughs> um, and plus I have what... So here what you do is you... Um, you if you're um, old enough, you have Medicare, and then you typically will purchase a supplemental insurance policy, which actually isn't that expensive. And so... Pretty much 100% of my medical expenses are actually covered by the insurance that I have. You asked me at the beginning about my parents. So, I, so my my father being in the hospital so very long, I because I hadn't lived in New Zealand for so long, I'd completely forgotten how terrific your the medical program is in New Zealand. And so when when I was getting ready to take my dad home from hospital, you know, he's been there all that time, and I'm imagining I'm going to have to mortgage my house to get him out of there. Um, and so, you know, I, I said to him when we were getting ready to go, I said, so I'll go take care of your bill for you. And he looks at me in astonishment and goes, what bill? <laughs> and not only, of course, the, the, the house was partly remodeled because he, he had had to have um, some surgery on his leg. It, it had actually broken off at the hip. Mm. So they'd had a bone graft. Um, and so 
he needed to have some you know changes to the shower and to the bathtub and all that was paid for and then special bed I, and i'd completely forgotten about all that stuff oh. um because that, that that kind of thing here would be very expensive now that would probably not be covered by my insurance that's a good story and a very helpful one as far as your dad was concerned yeah <laughs> That's interesting to hear. You, you'd be an American citizen by now, wouldn't you? Yes. So I have dual citizenship. Okay. Um, I would I would not have given up my New Zealand citizenship. So um, New Zealand allow, has allowed it as long as I've been here. Australia for a long time, of course, did not. What sorts of people tend to live in Carmel by the sea? It's a fairly big retirement community. There's a lot of, um, particularly in some of the surrounding areas, there are also a lot of military retirees. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, and, and again, I mean, Carmel itself is fairly expensive, but in the surrounding areas, and, and in fact, that's one of the complaints from the artist community, of course, is that they can't necessarily afford to to live in Carmel, and so we're pushed then out into some of the surrounding towns. Yeah, that's a common story, isn't it? That's a yeah. common story. So what do you do with your days, which seem busy enough, what with becoming a master of gardening and also your sleuthing group? What do you do uh, recreationally or socially in Carmel? There's a bit to do? Um, th- there's a fair amount. Um Pre-pandemic, I played a lot of tennis. Of course, my gardening, I, that's always been something that I've done. I, I started gardening when I was a kid. I used to grow vegetables and sell them to my mother. Um, <laughs> Did you? <laughs> at market, at, at uh, greengrocer prices, too. Um, let's see what else. Um, any New Zealand plants? I, Can you grow any New Zealand plants up there? It's funny that you asked that question. When I originally did my landscaping where I'm where I'm cu- uh, currently living, I actually did all native New Zealand plants. So I had lots of flax and I had, um, oh gosh, a, a parrot's beak, which oh, yeah. I guess is actually extinct in New Zealand. Uh, I started some from seed and I had grown all kinds of other things. Um, I had some unfortunate experiences with gardeners who didn't really know how to care for the flax and didn't know how to care for some of the other things and ended up killing them. Oh. What work you've done over the years. Have you ever been thanked by friends and family members of the victims of the Golden State Killer out of interest? Yes. Um, In fact, um, so I went to both the, the... uh, the the hearing and the sentencing for the Golden State Killer, I was invited by uh, Anne-Marie Schubert, who was the the lead district attorney on the case. Um, and m- many, 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 I think, in fact, most of the victims of the rape cases were present, plus families of the murder victims. Wow. And I had a lot of, lot, of, lot of people come up to me. And then even when I'm giving presentations various places, there will often be somebody there who either they themselves were were a victim or they you know were close friends with somebody who was um and even just people who lived in areas where he was active particularly in sacramento um i i think the most poignant story that has just really gave me goosebumps was a gentleman came up to me after one of my presentations and he had been about a i think about a nine or ten year old boy living in Sacramento 
at the time. And he apparently had a sliding glass door on his bedroom, and that was how the Golden State Killer often got into people's homes, was through a sliding glass door. And so he shared how he would put a dowel in the track on the uh, on the sliding glass door at night, and he would take his BB gun to bed with him so he could protect his mother and his sister in case there was an attack. Ah, wow. I, yeah, I mean, that, that's... It just gave me goosebumps hearing that. This poor little kid who's, you know, so scared for his mom and his sister. Gee. Yeah, what a thing to hear. And that describes the climate of fear that that, that man engendered for so long, yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, he would phone his, his victims, you know, weeks, months, even years after after he had, he had raped them. Um, there's one woman who... Apparently, she had she'd gotten divorced after after the rape. At some point, she'd remarried, moved to a completely different area, and he calls. He tracked her down, Gee. called her, told her he was going to kill her. Hell's bells—that's awful stuff, isn't it? So he's behind bars mm-hmm. forever. He is. Did he ever admit to being guilty? He did. Um, what was interesting is, so currently, so California has a death penalty. There's currently a moratorium on that because our current governor is opposed to the death penalty. However, these crimes were so bad that the district attorneys requested the death penalty for him. So at some point, he contacted um, them and said that he would be willing to plead guilty if they would take the death penalty off the table. So what they did is the statute of limitations had run on most of the rapes. And so as part of the, the, the deal to take the death penalty off the table, he not only had to confess to all of the murders, which of course there's no statute of limitations on murder, but that he would admit in court that he had carried out all of the rapes. And so he had to sit there and for all 50 rapes, he had to sit there and say, I admit. So he had to, I confess to all the murders, and then I admit to all of the rapes. So to use the closure word, uh, that would have provided some of that to the families of the victims and to the and to the women themselves, yeah? It did. It's, uh, they, they, so they, they all called themselves survivors. They didn't like the term victims. So they were the survivors. Yeah. And was absolutely huge for them that that they could sit there and um, finally get him to admit what he had done. You've done an awful lot of good, Barbara. You've solved dozens of cases with your skills in gene- genealogy and also internet foraging, if you can call it that, and DNA expertise. Um, you must be proud, actually. Um, well, thank you. Um, I, it, it's, I, I, I don't know that I've told too many people this. Right after Paul Holes had contacted me and asked me if I would uh, be willing to help him with one of his cold cases, he didn't say which one, um, I discovered that I had a 90% coronary artery blockage. And so I had to have um, a double bypass. Um, and I look at that and I, it, it's kind of odd. Um, 
I hadn't ever really thought about it in these terms. My my father had, I think, three bypasses. I mean, obviously, I got the the wonky ticker from from my father's side of the family. Um, but it's sort of like I'm living on borrowed time, if 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 it doesn't sound too odd. And I really feel like as long as I have this extra time, that I should be doing something useful with it. And so, this is my something useful that I'm doing. You sound like you have an incredibly useful life. And the evidence, speak, to use that evidence word, which is appropriate in our discussion, the evidence is in on everything you've achieved. So congratulations, Barbara. Well, thank you. Are you going to come back to New Zealand again? You should do. I'll, I'll probably come back to visit. Um, I mean, my, my, both of my brothers and their families uh, still live in New Zealand. Um, I've, I, you know, I often toy with the idea of of coming back to live, but my son lives here. He lives in San Francisco. All right. Um, it, that it, it's. I, I don't. I just. I, I wouldn't want to be that far away from from where my son is. Of course. So I stay here. Um, so I'm sure I'll be back to visit again. Just unfortunately, not to live. Just rename Carmel Kerry Kerry in your head. <laughs> there we go. Well, we may or may not see you uh, down here again, but uh, irrespective of that, we're proud that you're a New Zealander and you've achieved so much for the victims of crime. It's just absolutely remarkable, really, and you've been such a pioneer as well. It's a real pleasure having talked to you and actually something of an honour, Barbara. Thank you. Well, thank you.